3: This is the John Fuglesang podcast.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, this music, I love it. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Tell Me Everything with John Fugelsang right here on Progress. I'm Democratic strategist and Progress contributor Max Burns sitting in for John tonight. And can I just say there is nowhere I would rather be on a Friday evening than talking through America's ongoing political nightmare with all of you. Now, you're joining me here on Friday, November 3rd, 2023. At least I hope it's still Friday. Exactly three years after one vice president, Joseph R. Biden Jr., defeated President Donald John Trump in the 2020 presidential election. Yeah, folks, that was this day in 2020. But I'll tell you what, it's okay if you forgot, because I think we've all earned the right to not worry constantly about what the president is up to. And I think we've I learned a little bit of a break. I'll be here with you for the next three hours as we break down the biggest stories in our political world, along with a healthy dose of important news that fell through the mainstream media cracks this week. And believe me, there is a lot going on out there. Now, some of you may not know this, but next Tuesday, millions of Americans, myself included as a New Yorker, We'll be marching off to the polls to elect our state lawmakers and vote on ballot measures and do all that fun stuff that makes local government and democracy so great for nerds like me. Now, this year's so-called off-year elections are looking more like headliners from an abortion ballot measure in Ohio that could reshape the fight in the state to the state of Texas basically threatening to tax cut its way into bankruptcy. I'm not kidding. Now, of course, I'm really excited about all this because I started off my career as an elections nerd, and now I can just call people up and ask them to come on the radio and explain all this stuff to me, which is pretty amazing. The power of raw radio right there. And I want you to join the conversation, too. So you can call in all evening long. Give us a ring at 866-997-4748. That's 866-997-GRIT. Now, I am thrilled to be joined at the controls by two of the best in the business. We have, of course, Chris Hosselt, executive producing with his unmistakable flair. We have Thea Harper producing the show from Brooklyn. And I am, as always, coming to you live from Manhattan, where it is suddenly like the middle of winter. I don't know what happened. So, like I said, we're putting on a 2023 election extravaganza here on Tell Me Everything tonight. And that includes some of the amazing guests Chris charmed into joining me. In the 9 o'clock hour, we'll be joined by friend of the show and Virginia State Delegate Dan Helmer, who's going to give us the full situation report on what may be this cycle's most exciting set of races. And you all know, as a former Virginian, I'm obligated to have at least one member of the Commonwealth on the show every time I host. And joining me in the 10 p.m. hour, we have Susan Tebin from Ohio Capital Journal, who's kindly offered to walk us all through the issues at stake on the Ohio ballot next week from legalizing weed to protecting abortion rights to a bunch of wild Republican scandals. And wrapping up in the third hour, we have something really special for you. Our own Thea Harper has a new episode of Theoretically Speaking that's going to dig into the sag after strike. And believe me, after two hours of listening to me, Thea's actual talent for this work is going to seem like an oasis in the desert, guys. So stick around for that. Now, I mentioned some Ohio scandals. And those are going to make this year's statewide races really interesting. Because for Republicans, 2023 is unfolding in the wake of a massive bribery scandal that saw two of Ohio's top GOP officials thrown in prison for grifting almost 60 million bucks from taxpayers. Now, one of those guys was a former so-called family values Republican and former Speaker of the Ohio House. So take from that what you will. But the Family Values folks seem to be taking a lot of L's this year. In addition, we've got cool stuff that I want to tell you about that's going on in Ohio beyond just these headlines that's actually affecting local communities that isn't getting picked up by the press. And I want to get your thoughts on everything in the news today as well as anything else on your mind. Give us a call that number again, 866-997-4748 and join the conversation. So we got a really interesting and I hope really informative show for you tonight. And I can't wait to dig into all the election stuff. But first, we got to do some justice to Mr. Fugelsang and highlight some milestones. We got a big milestone coming across the wire here today. My sister Tess is getting married next week, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that at least one of us will know the sweet embrace of human love in this life. And carrying on with our election theme, on this day in 1936, The people re-elected President Franklin D. Roosevelt of New York by one of the largest vote margins in American history. Roosevelt absolutely swamped his Republican opponent, Alf Landon, with a 60-40 popular vote split and an eye-popping 523 electoral votes. In fact, Roosevelt's performance was so dominant that every state in the country went Democratic that year except for Vermont and Maine. And it's worth taking some time to think about what made Roosevelt so popular, because he was one of Joe Biden's biggest political icons. Biden said on multiple occasions that he looks at FDR as sort of a guiding figure in what he's trying to do. And he shows that in almost every major victory that he's achieved. Roosevelt understood on a fundamental level the importance of seeing the Democratic message reflected on the ground locally in the communities all across the country where people are living policy. And that's why a guy who couldn't walk crisscrossed the country, visiting small towns and big cities, laying out in plain language exactly what the problems we were facing were and how we together could rise to the occasion and fix them. I mean, you don't rack up 523 electoral votes by mistake, You do it by convincing the American people that you understand the problems we face as a country. And you do that by showing them a plan. Roosevelt had his recovery agenda. Biden has the kind of clumsily branded Bidenomics. But hey, it's a story. And it's a story of how Democrats are succeeding at turning around an economy that was caught in a Trumpian tailspin. It's a story Democrats need to be telling all across the country. Let's hope they take a lesson from FDR. Now, one of the honors of my life was attending the 20th anniversary memorial service at Ground Zero a couple of years ago, and being there even so many years later, it's an experience that really seeps into your bones. And for those of you listening from New York will know that this is a significant day. It was today in 2014 that the Freedom Tower was opened, replacing the iconic Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. But here's how bad of a New Yorker I am. I didn't actually know that it was never officially called the Freedom Tower. That's what everybody called it, but nope, it's One World Trade Center. And if you've never been there, you really should go. It's not just incredibly powerful as a museum, but also it's a stunningly beautiful place. Uh, It's a a fantastic place to reflect and and think in the city. Now, give me a call. Let me know if I missed anything you consider a milestone at 866-997-4748. Those are milestones. We also have a couple of headlines here, and I'm really interested to get your thoughts on these. Now, I hope you guys caught this, President Joe Biden visiting Lewiston, Maine, today, and he met with local leaders and the families affected by that terrible mass shooting nine days ago. In words that have become sadly familiar to us, Biden tried his best to grapple with America's epidemic of gun violence.
3: You know, and I've been at this a long time. I know consensus is ultimately possible. This is about common sense, reasonable, and responsible measures to protect our children, our families, our communities. Because regardless of our politics, this is about protecting our freedom to go to a bowling alley, a restaurant, a school, a church without
4: being shot and killed. Now, it's hard to talk about things like gun violence anymore because I've personally been writing about it for years from the advocacy side. And if anything, it feels like we're even farther behind today than we were after Sandy Hook. But this problem, it, it's not going to solve itself, guys. And it's all the more frustrating because we know what the solutions are. The only answer is to keep banging on the door of progress, as difficult as that can be. We know from experience how frustrating How often it can feel as if you're losing until the very moment that you win. But we have another chance to elect common-sense gun reform candidates next year. And also next week, which we'll talk about in just a second. And in funnier news, crypto-weirdo Sam Bankman-Fried was found guilty of seven federal charges, including wire fraud and money laundering. This is the guy to blame for NFTs, so cheer that. The former founder of the crypto brokerage FTX and Alameda Partners, turns out those were both just giant con games run by Bankman Freed, his parents and his friends. The feds claim Bankman Freed was using FTX and its associated companies as his own personal piggy banks to fund a lavish lifestyle of world travel and opulent mansions and tech bro excess, kind of like me. Well, now Bankman-Fried faces 110 years in prison for one of the largest financial frauds in world history. And listen, I'm an equal accountability kind of guy. So let's take a minute and talk about the people who allowed Sam Bankman-Fried to carry on such a massive global fraud. You had journalists and writers like Michael Lewis who were completely snowed by Bankman-Fried's sort of neo-hippie utopianism. And they gave him the benefit of the doubt. You had celebrities and influencers eager to be the first one in on the next big crypto movement, so they gave him the benefit of the doubt. You had tech reporters who were hungry to get insight from a guy everyone called the smartest guy in America, and they knew that the way to get that was to tell Bankman Freed that he could talk about whatever he wanted and to never, ever, ever question anything he said. In return, he'd give you pages and pages of techno babble all about how crypto was going to cure poverty and about how progressive politics and capitalism could work together and fighting Donald Trump or whatever he thought of that day. And those reporters gave Sam Bankman Fried the benefit of the doubt. Our country is losing its accountability structures. And Sam Bankman Fried's years long fraud is just the latest indication that our ability to snip out right from wrong is fading that could be because we've been subjected to an almost constant cascade of lies and manipulation from right-wing politicians and conservative media outlets it could be because we've never had strong enough enforcement to catch crooks like bankman freed in the first place or it could be any number of things but the fact remains bankman freed isn't the only bad fish out there he's just the bad fish who got himself caught so when you see a guy like speaker mike johnson saying he wants to defund the IRS and use that money to build a border wall, what he's really telling you is that he wants more people like Sam Bankman-Fried to slip through the cracks. And that's just fine with the GOP because none of them took the bait and invested their money with Sam Bankman-Fried. This country has always struggled to serve equal justice and equal accountability to wealthy and powerful people. But Republicans who are counseling us now to just give up entirely seem to have missed the point they just want to pack it in. They say there's no point in trying to catch anyone if you can't catch everyone. Yeah. You don't see them extending that same logic to immigration, do you? Now, I want to jump to the phones really quick before we take a brief break. Uh, let's chat with Mitch in Kent State. Hello, Max. Hey, Mitch. How are you?
3: Good. Good to hear you again, my friend. You know, I, I, uh, first of all, I got to apologize. I'm still writing a beetle high from this release uh, today, so I'm sorry. I don't like, blame you. I've been uh, indulging myself oh yes just immersed and uh, so good to uh, uh, just feel so good again Uh, Max I was talking to John last night about the uh, well this issue one and issue two we have coming up here next week Uh, you know the 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 issue one people for, for yes uh, are, are really, uh, I mean, this year they've got a good grassroots going on. And as far as the advertising and, and the uh, groundswell with the volunteers and such, especially here near the campus, has been overwhelming. I think that uh, in the early volume, course, I mean, it was... Uh, uh well, first of all, in August, by, by, by putting it on the ballot and, and, and getting it back on the ballot, uh, it was, uh, went, was a shot in the arm for us. So uh, I think good things here. I'm, I'm, I think in one and two actually both uh, should survive, uh, or at least I, I say 60 40 anyway, uh, the way the polls are going. So uh, we, uh, we, I think we have the, the, the wind on the, win our backs. But
4: now, are you honestly, feeling we... a lot of energy here? Are you seeing a lot of energy oh, on yes. the ground here? Because I've seen just from my completely external view, I've I've noticed that Republicans don't seem to know how to handle the huge amount of enthusiasm they're seeing on the ground and they're almost pulling away. And I I love to get confirmation of that from people who are actually there.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, from where I, you know, well, I said I'm near the campus here. Well, of course, our, the campus is a bit, uh, you know, we a little more uh, liberal, you know, of course, but, compared to some of the other universities. But still, uh, the overall uh, vibe I get, at least uh, in the surrounding counties, even here in Cleveland, and such uh, is uh, is is a positive vibe. The early voting, I think, is um, it, 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 it has uh, it 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 set itself in and and uh, it. it I think it's uh, it's worked, but uh, the other thing I was t- like I was telling John last night. You know, Max, if the abortion issue was, um, it would not be an issue. First of all, if men were the ones experiencing pregnancy, <laughs> True. Let's face that. I mean, you know, it makes it makes a lot of sense because you know it's men telling women, you know, what what they should be doing, and it's it's just uh, wrong from the get-go. So you know, it's just it's got to. Uh, it's gotta turn around. There's always to it. I mean with with Duane in there, I you know, I just Well,
4: I am counting on Ohioans to continue the yeah. streak. There has so far, uh, when abortion measures have been on state referendums, every single one has passed. And that's true even in ruby red states. So I right. am counting on Ohio to stick this out. We're it's we're really depending on you guys to keep the streak.
3: Yeah, hopefully we can turn around and you know, at least get back to purple again. My God, you know, it's uh, it, you know, at least get back to purple again and, and should be good. But you know, what, Nebraska and, uh, you know, a couple of the other states that uh, turned it around. So hopefully we, we yep. can uh, join that course.
4: Well, I appreciate your call. I'm wishing the best. We're going to cover a lot more of that. So stick around. You're going to love some of these conversations. Now, I want to get back to to what our big topic is for the night here before we jump to a break. And that's next Tuesday's statewide elections. And folks, if you live in Colorado, Kansas, Kentucky, Maine, Minnesota, Mississippi, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, Virginia, or Washington, you do have statewide elections November 7th. So go out and vote because I'm going to let you in on a secret. Washington isn't going to solve your problems. If you want to find the source of so many of the far right nightmares we're facing, you shouldn't look at Congress. You need to be looking at Republican state legislatures, Republican state governors, and Republican state Supreme Courts. And when we get back, we're gonna have a conversation with Virginia Delegate Dan Helmer, who's leading the charge in one of the biggest profile states in this election cycle. And the way that it moves could determine which way 2024 faces. You're listening to Progress. Stick around.
1: Freaker or wherever you get your podcast on, because, you
2: know, I love it when you do.
4: Welcome back to Tell Me Everything with John Saying, If you're just joining us, I'm Max Burns filling in for John. And we are talking about next week's statewide elections in over a dozen states. But there's one I want to focus on in particular, Virginia where a smaller version of the 2024 presidential race is playing out alongside some of the issues that will also define 2024. Joining me now is a guy who knows these issues inside and out because it's his job, Virginia Delegate Dan Helmer. He's leading the charge with the Virginia House Democrats' campaign operation. He's had a front row seat for all of the MAGA all the time grievance that Glenn Youngkin has been foisting on Virginians. Delegate Helmer, thanks so much for taking the time.
0: Max, it is such a joy to be back with you tonight.
4: So for our listeners who may not be deeply versed in Virginia politics, give us the sort of quick situation report. Why is so much money flowing into the state's legislative races? And why have so many national groups suddenly taken a big interest in what are usually pretty local elections?
0: Max, Virginia is the last southern state that hasn't banned abortion. And so for 4 million women here, for 31 million more women across the South, this is the last safe haven where the rights that American women enjoyed before the overturning of Roe v. Wade remain the law of the state. And we are working so hard to keep it that way. And if we fail to protect our majority in the Senate or take a majority in the House, we will lose the ability to protect those rights.
4: Now, as you mentioned, this is this all comes down to this House and Senate divide. The House of Delegates, which is, I, I believe, fifty-two forty-eight in favor of Republicans, and then the state Senate, which is very narrowly Democratic. And Glenn Youngkin has made no Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, has made no mystery about his intention of winning these seats so that he can take back these chambers and push through an abortion ban, primarily.
2: Let me play this clip for you. As I said, I believe life begins at conception. In Virginia, we've got to work with a Senate and a House. This is what we've been doing. But will you ever pursue a full ban? Well, I believe that what my job is, is to get something done. And I believe we can get a 15-week pain threshold bill done in Virginia. For the first time, think about it. This was a state, again, that just 18 months ago was talking about enabling abortion all the way up through and including birth. And now we're able to talk about a 15 week pain threshold bill where a baby feels pain. This is a remarkable moment for us and it's an opportunity I'm not gonna let go.
4: Now, I mean, first off, the guy is practically salivating at the thought of taking rights away from women. But I'm curious with all that you've seen, what, how is this message landing with actual Virginia voters?
0: Well what we are hearing again and again is from voters like a constituent of mine who told me that for years she and her husband had tried to get pregnant and finally after multiple rounds of ivf learned that they were going to have a baby and then at 15 weeks were devastated when their doctor told them that the fetus would likely die in utero and would never survive birth and she wrote me and asked me to share her story. And she said, in a post row America, in a young and controlled Virginia, I would have been forced to carry an unviable fetus to term, a pain magnitudes greater than what I experienced. And we're hearing those stories from women all over our commonwealth. Don't forget that this mega governor and his allies who tried to mandate transvaginal ultrasounds and criminalize abortion when they were in control in the past, has said he would gleefully and joyfully sign any bill. And so what we hear from voters over and over again is they don't believe the smoke and mirrors of the terrible 15-week proposal. But time and again, when Republicans think that nobody is listening, they will say they support, like John Stirrup, like Tara Durant, a complete ban on abortion.
4: so what is and the voters mo- don't buy it. Yeah. So what is the motivation here behind all that? I mean, we, we've already seen, and Republicans can read polls, I don't care what Donald Trump says, and they see what happened in 2022. They, they, We've had Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell saying he would prefer Republicans avoid talking about abortion at all over the next year. So why, on the other side of this, do we now have Glenn Youngkin essentially doubling down and tying his party not just in Virginia, but nationally to this really losing issue for them.
0: Well, I I can't speak to their motivations. What I do know is that we are seeing MAGA extremists run all over the Commonwealth who deny elections, would seek to overturn election results, who would ban access to safe and legal abortion, who spite some of the most vile lies about um about people use racism use anti-semitism and so i can't speak to why they are choosing this particular strategy but i can speak to many of the candidates that they're running in many of these districts
4: and when we talk about the issues that are actually driving these races democrats from what i've seen in virginia have done an incredible job of messaging on the issues and actually localizing these races down they feel very authentic and very intimate and yet on the other side of that you have glenn Youngkin sort of torn between running for president and trying to manage this operation that's he's pumped tens of millions of dollars into to elect these republicans and then he's got moments where he says strange things like this uh, which is the governor talking about another one of his pet issues
2: let me begin that virginia has 8.7 million people so We've nearly seen the entire state of Virginia come across the border. It's unbelievable. And and this chaos that has not only created a humanitarian crisis is creating a national security crisis and a drug crisis. And we've seen the cartels press into all of the states. So now every state's a border state. Every state
4: is, is a border state now. You've got to make the maps tough. But I guess my question for you, Delegate Helmer, is why can we get Glenn Youngkin to talk about almost anything in the world except the actual state that he's running? Because it seems he's actually proven pretty difficult to get on the record on core issues with his base.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, this is a continuation of what we've seen from this governor as he tries to appeal to MAGA, as he wouldn't accept the results of the presidential election and toyed with election denial as he's put forward efforts to whitewash history saying we need to teach both sides of the holocaust and jim crow as maga extremists in the house of delegates proposed a ban on teaching elements of history like what we had to do to overcome slavery in this country and so time and time again we've seen him lean into divisive culture war issues when virginians are looking for people who are going to make sure they can afford to live here we are gonna fund a world-class education for their kids and bring the best educators to our state, who care deeply about protecting our rights, including the right to have access to safe and legal abortion, and Virginians who care deeply about making sure our communities are safe, particularly from gun violence. Those are what I'm hearing about as I go from district to district, as I knock in my own district, and it's no surprise that a governor whose aspirations are the White House who has sought to divide us rather than bring us together, would be talking about the most divisive issues or losing sight of the geography that Virginia is not, in fact, a border state.
4: And I think that's absolutely a, a fantastic point. I think what we've seen, especially in Virginia in the past, is this idea that voters expect their leaders to communicate with them. And if you have a Democrat who's talking to you, knocking your door, communicating with you directly, even if you don't entirely agree with them, that voter will take that Democrat over a Republican who doesn't think they're worth the time to talk to, which is sort of the, the challenge I see this falling into.
0: A hundred percent. We are, I mean, one of the things that we have really focused on and I have focused on in the as our campaigns chair is, you know, we've seen all this money flood in from billionaire and multimillionaire donors like Harlan Crow, who, uh, as you know, has had a role in uh, the uh, Supreme Court scandals of late, but also was a large donor to our governor, but uh, that was after he was doing illegal gifts to Clarence Thomas. We have tried to combat that, not only by raising money to out-message Republicans from our grassroots supporters, but also by ensuring our candidates come from their communities, look like their communities, have experiences that matter to their communities, and speak to their communities. I was. Uh, on Wednesday with Kimberly Pope Adams, an incredible candidate we have in Petersburg, and every single door we went to, she would knock on the door, and people know her, they've heard her, they've seen her commercials, they would smile from ear to ear when they opened the door, kids would dance on the doorstep, because she's brought such joy to her campaign. I, I was out with another one of our my friends, uh, Marine Josh Thomas, who's running in a critical district in Prince William, and again, door to door to door, You would hear from people, oh, I know Josh Thomas. I am excited about having a Marine who shares my values, represent me in the House of Delegates, and contrast him with John Stirrup, who has said on tape that he would support a complete and total ban on abortion. So we're seeing that these door-to-door conversations that these incredible candidates are having with their neighbors stand far apart from what this extreme governor and the MAGA Republicans who are trying to take over in virginia stand for and the issues that they're talking about
4: if you're just tuning in this is tell me everything with john fugle saying and i'm max burns sitting in for john i'm talking with virginia delegate dan helmer about next week's statewide elections there now you mentioned the money and that is something that has been stunning to me the amount of money that's come into this race glenn youngkin aligned groups have spent somewhere north of 19 million dollars i see seen the-, the parties have thrown in a few million each but this it's more fascinating when you realize how small the playing field is. Everything indicates the balance will come down to a few key seats in Northern Virginia and around Hampton Roads and Richmond. And those are areas that I don't normally think of as having a lot in common ideologically. So how have those two sort of regions become such flashpoints?
0: Yeah, we see critical seats that go even beyond that. So one of the things that stands out to me about Uh, What is happening in Virginia, and the momentum, frankly, that Democrats are building is that the governor went three times in the last couple of weeks to Blacksburg. You didn't mention Blacksburg because it's out there is a wonderful candidate named Lily Franklin. It's a Trump-Yunkin district. And yet the grassroots support and the support for our issues like protecting our freedoms is a bit of a universal value. And in Blacksburg, it's really resonating not only in the campus of Virginia Tech, but in the areas around it. And Lily Franklin is presenting this incredible challenge out there in a district that is a Trump-Yunkin district. And you would think that the governor, if he weren't on the ropes, wouldn't be running out to Blacksburg to a Trump-Yunkin district three times in two weeks. And so whether it's in Hampton Roads, whether it is in Henrico and the environs of Richmond, whether it's in Prince William County in Northern Virginia, whether it's in Western Loudoun County, where we're meant we're mounting a great campaign against an election denier who talked about the overthrow of an election with Rob Bance, our candidate, a well-known pastor, we're seeing that all of this outside money that's coming in doesn't combat these incredible candidates, that our message really resonates, that it is a universal message across Virginia, tempered with local candidates who know how to translate those values into the things that matter directly for their communities and who are willing to do the work. And frankly, one of the things that stands out to me, a campaign like ours, uh, you know, I, as our campaign chair, have raised over $2 million from 14,000 donors. And so we don't have people who will cut us those million dollar checks that Glenn Youngkin relies on. But we have a grassroots army that is supporting these candidates and allowing us to stand up dollar for dollar to Youngkin's money all over the commonwealth.
4: And that, I think, is such a fascinating aspect of it, because I I came up in politics through that sort of campaign management, message management work. And it's something that for a long time felt very secondhand, that it was something that the interns handled. But now you're you seeing the real professionalization of this. And especially when you're dealing with areas that have so many differences, like Hampton Roads and Fairfax, are you finding that there are ways of spreading your message that are more effective than where you thought
0: they would be? I don't know. if. There is something that's more effective than I thought it would be. I think that what matters more than professionalization of campaigns is having the right messengers. And we focused a lot on talking to dedicated people in communities who sought to be great public servants and who can translate universal values to local needs. And so I think we have the right values as Democrats, how we talk about them in Hampton Roads. Is a little bit different than how we might talk about them in Henrico, is a little bit different than we might talk about them in Blacksburg or Western Loudoun uh, or in Fairfax County. And having candidates who share those values and are connected to the communities in ways that allow them to have a conversation in a majority Black community versus a rural white community versus a suburban mixed API black and white uh community there's just very different messengers and very different messages even though the values that tie them together are the same
4: so when you look at this beyond just just Yunkin and how we message around these nightmares it is sort of apparent that for better or for worse the is focused on virginia as this sort of bellwether for what 2024 will look like and they're already hyping up expectations that you should read very deeply into these results And we're seeing a lot of increased talk about national issues, like, for example, Tommy Tuberville's blockade of military promotions. I know from listening to Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, this is really hitting home in some parts of Virginia. How is that shaping your thought process for the election?
0: Well, first of all, this idea that we should look to Virginia for national lessons when we win on Tuesday night, I hope that's true. And the burning dumpster fire that has been the U.S. House of Representatives as Republicans shut the House down for weeks in an effort to out-maga one one another to elect a speaker who denied the election and was a key architect of the efforts to deny the election results. And before that, fought a bigoted effort to undo LGBTQ rights in America. When they look at that, and they don't want any of it here. And we are highlighting that. We actually ran a six-figure ad program around what was going on in the U.S. House because Virginians don't want that. They're not looking for dysfunction. They're looking for functional government.
4: So what can Virginians or even people outside Virginia who are listening to this right now actually do now to make a difference? I know there's always a temptation to say, well, the race is almost over. What more can I do? So what more can they do?
0: Well, uh, we need people to make phone calls. We need people to knock doors. Uh, we are still and will be still sending resources to campaigns through Tuesday. If you want to go uh, to um, my PAC, you can secureprogress.org and donate there. We need all the help we can get. And we can use your thoughts, your prayers, your calls, your door knocks. And if you live in Virginia, for goodness sake, please go vote tomorrow. Tuesday because we need your vote because we can't take it for granted.
4: Now, I won't be on the air next Tuesday, but in the couple minutes we have left, give me a few things (laughs) that I should be looking out for early that may indicate things are going well for Democrats in Virginia. Are there any key races I should be watching?
0: If you yeah, that's a great question. You know, our 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 numbers come in at different times, depending on specific county registrars and and how long it takes them to get the results. We tend to get rural uh, votes in a little bit quicker than suburban uh, areas, so don't don't fret. If early in the night things look very red, that that tends to be more of the same day vote count. It tends to be more of the rural areas, and so you can get a little bit of a mirage. So take take a deep breath if you see that. If um, you know, if early in the night we find out that Lily Franklin wins in Blacksburg, Ron Vance wins in Western Mountain, uh Stephen Miller Pitts wins, uh, those are races that suggest that it's going to be a a route for us that we are really really winning in a big way uh, and that is a possibility um you know th- th- those those are probably th- those would probably be bellwethers of a big night if not there i would be looking at mike fagans in virginia beach uh karen jenkins and hampton roads i would be looking at um the darius clark who's one of our incumbents and rodney willett another one of our incumbents um and you know looking to see if they're winning that that is all good news if josh thomas or Travis Nemhard are winning, that's good news. And we have a lot of paths to victory here. We have incredible candidates on them. And I think if you see some of those names uh, ringing ringing wins on Tuesday night, it's gonna look like a a good night.
4: Well, it is hard to be both stressed and excited, but I think I'm both. Delegate Helmer, it's been a pleasure to talk to you again. You're gonna have to come back after this and you get some post-election sleep and then tell us how everything went. What is the best place for people to find out about the work you're doing and get in touch with you?
0: Yeah. If if you'd like to, you can go to danhelmer.com. That's D-A-N-H-E-L-M-E-R.com. Sign up for our newsletter. Stay in touch. We are going to go win this thing on Tuesday. And then we're going to build momentum going into 2024. And really excited to have as many partners as we can work with us on that.
4: Thank you, sir. That was my guest, Delegate Dan Helmer, and he's going to have some awfully busy days ahead in the run-up to Election Day in Virginia next week. We're all wishing him and all the Virginia Dems the absolute best. When we get back, your calls at 866-997-4748 and a preview of what's ahead for the 10 o'clock hour. You're listening to Progress. Stick around. Okay, picture this. It's Friday
5: afternoon when a thought hits you.
4: Welcome back folks. We're closing out the first hour here on Tell Me Everything with John Fugel saying, and I want to thank you once again for spending your evening with us right here on Progress. Jump into the conversation. I'm a man with many questions and many inquiries tonight. 866-997-4748. We're talking 2023 elections next week, 2024 elections next year, and all of the nightmares in between. Now, when we get back to the top of the next hour, I'm going to be going into this in a little more detail. But Democrats have a real problem, and it's something we can't avoid talking about any longer, because no matter how good the economy seems to get, most Americans still think things have never been worse. And listen, it's one thing if MAGA Republicans think America sucks, because they've always thought America sucks. But we're seeing a lot of independents, a lot of progressive Democrats who are telling pollsters that they think the economy actually feels worse than it did when Donald Trump was president. I mean, really? Are you Kidding me? Get in on the conversation. I uh, imagine the number 866 997 4748, 866 997 GRIT. And let's jump over to Mark in South Dakota who has some thoughts on next year's election strategy. Mark, how are you?
1: Oh, I'm uh, doing great. Can you hear me, Mark? I can. How are you? Okay, guys. Sorry, I'm driving a bit. I just uh, want to make a like, quick uh It's difficult, but. Uh... Uh, Actually, I've been excited to to you about this. I like, got uh, whenever I would get a chance, but uh, I've uh, I call the show semi-regular and talk to John. But I, I would, if I have to say one thing, is my central theme is that if we really want to have the party be secure in winning in the future, we have to go at the heart of its strength, or the republic, the heart, not at the heart of the Republican strength. And that's simply rural, rural America. Uh, I mean, I know we're not going to win in 2020. Well, like, it, I mean, I'm super familiar with, like, the the county by county map. I'm sure you are, too, and so forth. Yep. But obviously, you know, I know, you know, the map-wise, you know, it's like, it's, yes, there's a whole shit ton of red out there, that map, and so forth. And, yes, it's like, but that it's 90% just. Counties with you know bump up nowhere and so forth, but at the heart of that is the fact that that is the heart of the beast, and the heart of the beast like allows everything from the ground level up to work. It's how they have like you know the electoral college. You think of like all the states with less than a million people, they virtually all go to republican you know, one you know, Senate, President, and everything and so forth. But then you get down down you get All the crazy MAGA Congress people guarantee they're from somewhere in rural, rural America, almost guaranteed. And then you get even further down ballot, the state houses, the legislatures, the governors, and it's all that. So I say first thing that we just got to do to help cut out this beast is to put forth an effort. Uh,
4: oh I agree completely. I mean I think that we should be contesting these these rural counties. There is this myth and there are a lot of republican myths that re- that democrats have just accepted over the years. One of them that abortion talking about abortion is political suicide. Well, we proved that wasn't true. The other one is this idea that there is nothing for democrats in rural America. I mean it's not true. Look at Georgia for example. Small rural communities, Milledgeville, Georgia, Thomasville, Georgia, Americus. Uh, eight, went went for Biden by eight, nine, seventeen percent I mean, these are small farm communities. They once were very Republican. But The Washington Post had a story back in August about this, how these rural communities have become much less extreme conservative as they've watched the failures of conservatism roll out. I mean, these are farmers. Farmers under Trump had a record suicide rate because they were stuck in a trade war with China that had no end and was decimating their crop prices. I mean, if these people are not ready to jump, then I don't know what to tell you. I mean, every indication we have is that if Democrats go into these communities, as Dan Helmer, my guest before said, that the votes are there. We just need to reintroduce yeah. ourselves and re engage.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, and I was kind of making like the point, like it's been it's been proven before, like uh like the the biggest proof of concept I can come up with is John Fetterman. He didn't win Pennsylvania by the old, you know, swing the suburbs or, or just, you know, get really get out the votes in Philadelphia or whatever. He basically went into all those counties and I mean, he didn't win them obviously. It's like, it's, it's going to be a long game to like, you know, flip, you know, a lot of these places like actually red, but if you take every county and like, you know, there's only a, like, I've seen the big Mac, but even in red state or even in blue states, like it's, they always say, "Oh, we're not really a red. like." I, I see, I see so many Minnesotans that say, "Oh, we're not really a blue, a blue state. We're just a we're a red state ruled by the Twin Cities." It's BS, but it. I hear that from Illinois too. The same story. It's like, "Oh, we're ruled by Chicago." But you go into all these counties that are red. If you shrink the margins in every one of them anywhere between one and five percent, purple states become blue states, and red states become pink or purple states. And oh, no, that's exactly before, you right. Know, you know, yeah, And,
4: and I'm, I'm glad that we're finally reaching a point where in, in organizing and progressive politics, people are beginning to realize that this is a margin game, that it's not about turning every single rural district in America into a blue oasis, but about swipping enough of those. And some of these districts in New York that are decided by by less than a percent that will flip back. It's about turning those districts and just enough of them. We and and this is an incremental generational process, as Franklin Roosevelt taught us. Oh, yeah. It took a generation to get to where he was within this infrastructure. It will take a generation of building it to do it now, but it's something that we have to I do agree. because we will get out organized.
1: I agree. I agree. And and one thing, I'm not coming at you empty-handed. I'm not just you know begging, pleading, come do for us. I have something for you to take to the people, you know, and it kind of goes hand in hand with you talking West, uh, talking about Virginia. Because around the time when they uh, took back the House of Delegates or whatever they call it, and so forth, they uh, finally got around to ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment. And I don't know if we have to start from scratch on this because I've looked, I've looked into this and so forth. But because uh, I guess the time passed, you know, like 40 years ago or something like that. So I, I don't know if it is kind of the D- OA or so forth. But if we, if if we like everyone from Biden to the state legislature people in 2024, if they make the focus saying that if you, if you give us, you know, all three in the, in the house, you know, all three chambers in, in Washington, we will go for an amendment to basically re-up the equal rights amendment. And the reason I go with this is like, it, it there really isn't a, like you have to draw a line, hard line in the sand with uh you know, for on the, on the issue of women. Like as long as, this would have been an amendment long ago if they knew this wouldn't be the death knell for all this anti-Roe and anti, like pretty much all the, you know, the Christian right sort of stuff. They know that is pretty much, they're like, you know, as long as that is, there's nothing in the constitution that doesn't explicitly out, you know, outlaw all this stuff that they want to do, they will keep going at it one way from one way or another. And to my point about this is how this helps with rural America is like, Yes, you can go all these national polls and whatnot, but, like, we're not evenly distributed. It's not like, you know, we're not distributed by race, by income level, by college, you know, degrees and so on and so forth. But we essentially are pretty well, everywhere we go, it's pretty much 50-50 men, women, and so forth. So that's one of those things that every little county, like, just draw the line in the sand. Are you for women having equal rights to men or are you not? And, and hammer, I think
4: we're getting there. Hammer, I think you're seeing hammer. Joe Biden yeah. do that, though, though, in, in in defensive. And I've been very critical about how Democrats have messaged abortion. But I do think we're getting there. You're seeing for the first time the president really come out and aggressively message abortion. I thank you for your call. We have to jump to a break oh, in yeah. just a minute. If you are on the line, stick around. We're going to take some more calls at the top of the next hour. Uh, but let's jump to a little international update. Uh, as as you may know, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Israel and the Middle East for the second time in two weeks as the situation in Israel and Gaza continues to move toward a ground invasion. The latest update from the AP that Israel is resisting U.S. pressure to pause their planned invasion uh, to allow more aid and humanitarian evacuation to Gaza. They're saying they want hostages back before they will do anything. For now, they are still uh, listening and engaging with the United States. For how much longer that remains the case, it is uncertain. You are listening to Progress. We will be right back after this with more of your calls.
2: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery. Okay, picture this.
5: It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
4: Welcome back, friends. I'm Max Burns, sitting in for the great John saying on this beautiful Friday evening. And we are talking everything elections, because there are over a dozen statewide elections happening next week, and they'll give us the clearest view yet into how the electorate is feeling ahead of the big dance next year. Now, I am admittedly not an Ohio expert. As someone from Indiana, I have a healthy level of disdain for Ohio. And I have found someone who does have expertise in this issue, who can help us understand not just what's going on with two ballot measures that could reshape the national debate, but also to give us some background on how we got here and why Ohio seems to be having so much trouble with its politics lately. Now, this is an issue that I think is is incredibly powerful in that it's something that isn't normally covered by the mainstream media. And Ohio Capital Journal reporter Susan Tebin has been covering it her whole career, Now, she's worked in Ohio News for a decade now, and like all local news reporters, she has worn many hats in her day, covering everything from local government and education to the courts and the crime beat and culture reporting. If you want someone who can do it all, folks, get yourself a journalist. Susan has been deep in Ohio's election, and she has been kind enough to take some time out of her evening to sit and give us an update. Susan, thanks so much. Happy to be here. Now, Ohio has had something of a tough time with elections lately. You've had this ongoing fight about redistricting and going back and forth with courts over which maps are too racist to be allowed. (laughs) There was this pitched battle earlier this year about requiring a 60% supermajority for statewide initiatives to pass. And now the state's reproductive justice ballot measure has really taken the
6: national focus. Is Ohio okay? (laughs) It depends on who you ask um we we definitely have had a lot of um and what journalists would call job security here in the state um when i uh started i actually picked up the redistricting beat um from someone who had departed us and i thought oh yeah well I'm, I'm i'll pick that up it'll be a month of deciding you know looking at the trends for the elections from the past 10 years and and you know doing this regularly done thing that's done every 10 years uh, two years later, I'm still covering that, and we're still seeing the Ohio Supreme Court involved, even the U.S. Supreme Court involved, and uh, so we we've definitely got a lot going on here, and a lot of um, you know back and forth from all different kinds of groups. And of course, the the
4: Republican Party and activists uh, on reproductive rights have chosen to pick this big fight on abortion and reproductive freedom. And this is, as I mentioned earlier, in line with the trend of ballot measures, all of which have so far succeeded, uh, that are protecting against the worst excesses of the right's efforts to ban abortion. And I'm curious about the nuances here. As, As someone who has talked to a lot of people on the local level about this, I'm always surprised you wrote a fascinating piece with your colleague, Megan Henry, about the abortion ballot measure not being as clear cut for people as you might think. In particular, you talked to religious Ohioans who held some pretty nuanced views on the subject themselves. Talk a little about that.
6: Yeah, and I have another story because uh, I have gotten even more um, people, including some pastors that have reached out to me to say, you know, I I believe in this issue one, and I don't think that the government should be involved in in you know talking about women's lives, pregnant people's lives, and, and it shouldn't be something where we're talking about the government regulating this stuff. It should be between a doctor and their are patient. Um, so, they, yeah, that's a lot of what we're hearing. Honestly, the polling, uh, you know, public opinion in Ohio for a while has been in support of uh, abortion rights, at least having it legal um, in most cases. Uh, and what we saw here in the state is um, after Roe came down, um, we had the reinstitution of a six week ban, which which banned abortions after six weeks uh, post menstrual period. Um, that was seen as a, a very extreme, obviously very right, yeah. right winged kind of um, ban, and it was supported by the governor, who now does not support issue one. Obviously, he's been very vocally um, anti-abortion. He does not like the idea of that being something that's instituted into our constitution. Um, so we have, you know, many sides to this, but. We're seeing religious lobbies, Ohio Right to Life, Ohio, uh, the Citizens Center for Christian Virtue. Those are big religious lobbies in the state house. Um, they are, of course, against this. But what we're seeing from, you know, the general public that we've talked to, uh, pastors, doctors, uh, nursing students, doctor students, the people that are trying to become doctors in the state and even saying we may leave the state if this becomes a thing, you know, just to, your everyday person don't they don't feel as strongly about this abortion rights thing they they feel like this should be a decision that's made within the confines of an examination room a hospital whatever needs to be and the thing about this constitutional amendment is it's not just talking about abortion it's also talking about how reproductive rights affects contraception we've seen you know Clarence Thomas talking about Maybe reconsidering some contraception precedents in the courts and fertility treatments are talked about in this in this constitutional amendment, because that's can be something that involves spontaneous abortions, which is what miscarriages are called and things like that. And then you're talking about continuing one's own pregnancy is even in this uh, amendment and miscarriage care. So there's a lot of different things here that, you know, that that's the nuance that people are saying, well, I don't think I. I disagree with that stuff. And I don't think that should be something that the state legislature should just be able to say, this is how it goes and that's how it is. So that's that's a lot of what we're seeing in the state.
4: And I think what makes your writing so important on this is this idea that there it shows you how hollow this sort of idea of re- the religious extremism used by the right to mobilize their base is on this. I mean, you see not reflected at all in many of the people you speak to. These are deeply devout people who are, in some cases, they've run into fertility challenges. Like you mentioned, they've worked in healthcare. They've managed to evolve their views while still remaining observant religious people. They certainly aren't caricatures you often see thrown out in the national media on either side. And it just makes me wonder why, why there is such a pressure to put that That narrative out there when clearly it's not resonating with voters. And and if we see it repeatedly not resonating with voters, why this seems to be the only tool in the Republican toolkit.
6: Right. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I talked to a pharmacist, I talked to a physician's assistant, both of whom said, yeah, sure, professionally, I don't think this is right. I think people should be able to decide. But also personally, they both had had tough pregnancies or ectopic pregnancies which are not viable and, and often cause life-threatening um problems for the pregnant person and so mm-hmm. it becomes a personal issue and they say you know I don't want someone to stand there and be afraid that they're going to get prosecuted by the state while they're trying to decide whether I can live or die and that's basically what it comes down to is I ha- I don't want to have to sit here and say so you know it, it is an interesting thing to see and, and it does all tie back to you know, are we seeing the actual public opinion being represented within the legislature? Because as you're talking about redistricting, a lot of accusations have been thrown around about gerrymandering and and seeing these um, Republican leaning districts pop up all over the state with these every we've had six different state house maps that have come up in this redistricting process and they've all had strong republican liens which republicans obviously say that's how the elections led and and you know you have the other side and the other studies that say this really was supposed to be closer to you know a 58 46 whatever you know, a closer percentage than what you're saying this is supposed to be. And that that does impact. You know, if you have these strongly Republican leading districts, you're going to have strongly Republican issues coming up and and not a lot of recourse for people to be able to vote out people that, you know, they may not agree with.
4: And if it wasn't enough that they're pushing uh, these gerrymandered districts that even the courts are saying are just too racist to be legal there's also this other front that that I, I was reading about that's been pushed. And this is the, the secretary of state pushing 26,000, I believe, voters off of the rolls because uh, of for various reasons under their law and then violating his general policy of informing voter registration groups before doing that so that they'll have a chance to contact those voters. But this does seem specifically targeted to try and toss out voters ahead of this what's expected to be a fairly close ballot.
6: Right. You're, you're saying a lot of things that we've heard from everybody. And we actually, I mean, the secretary of state, Frank LaRose, he's defended that thing, you know, these, these were people even saying, these were people that hadn't voted in four years, which led to the argument of, well, um, our voter registration doesn't expire in four years. So, you know, we have a lot of that. We even have Democrats, yeah, democratic leaders in the state house saying they need to, put these people back on the roll. So it's a very interesting and and interestingly timed time to do that. But, you know, he has his defense and he's doubled down on this and said that was what I would do at any other election.
4: If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Ohio Capital Journal reporter Susan Tebin about next week's statewide elections in Ohio. And you mentioned it is convenient. It certainly is, especially when you roll back a little bit and realize that the Secretary of State is not some objective observer. He has been actively campaigning against the abortion uh, amendment and has played a very active role in, in organizing the opposition. So it is interesting to see that suddenly the voter rolls needed changed. But I've heard from a lot of pundits who are calling Ohio sort of 2024 in miniature, especially with abortion now becoming this proxy war, a lot of national money coming in. But that almost to me does a disservice to the unique issues that are in play in the state is there anything that jumps out to you that the national media has missed in in what we have coming up next week
6: yeah i mean i think we've seen a lot of obviously we have the polarization we've seen um you know both sides just fervently going after each other um but it's it's hard for you know especially journalists in this state and and watching this and having watched this for four years as i have now it's um you know hard to boil down the misinformation that's been put into this and and you know we want to put it in perspective of how much money is in the campaign and we want to put it in perspective of you know what the polls say those kinds of things are obviously important Um, but i think it's important also that we're looking at this uh, not from such a one side is bias one side is the other side is biased as well. It has to come down to, you know, what does the medical science say? And what are these facts yeah. that we need to put into play? Like we've, we've had this parental rights argument that's been going on. Um, you know, obviously the Ohio, Ohio Rights to Life and the, you know, anti-abortions have said this issue one, this constitutional amendment for reproductive rights will take away parental rights. And that's just not what constitutional lawyers are saying and that's not what you know the people that wrote this thing are saying and then you have medical uh, medical you know physicians and things that are saying they're saying that this is going to cause um, allow late-term abortions and late-term abortion that term is is not a thing that is used in medical medical science yeah and it's 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 called a preterm baby and, and we don't tend to kill preterm babies. It's just, you know, it goes into the oaths that medical physicians have taken. It goes into what are these things that we're actually talking about and do legislators have the wherewithal to be able to say, this is the science, this is the facts, or are we listening to the wrong people?
4: And you are absolutely right. I mean, there has been a flood of disinformation and misinformation circulating around, not just through social media, but even in some cases, I'm seeing people getting mailers, people getting things dropped at their doorstep that just contain conspiracies and disinformation. And it really shows you how polarized and how contentious this is becoming. But Mm -hmm. Ohioans also have a marijuana legalization measure on the ballot. And I, I can see why. I mean, you're clearly all very stressed. This is a lot to deal with. <laughs> but but this is also about a lot more than just people smoking weed. I mean, supporters say that Ohio is missing out on tens of millions of dollars in tax revenue that's going to states like Michigan where weed's legal. And that's money they want to keep in the state. So what is the feeling about this one? Does it does it
6: pass? Does it not? It's you know, that one is harder to say than it is the abortion one. Um obviously abortion we've seen polling, we've seen people say. You know, this does seem like it's um, got the support it needs, um, and a lot of people say the previous issue one, the the one about the threshold for sixty percent, the people that didn't support that will support issue one. Um, there is support for issue two. There's a difference here with issue two because issue two is actually an initiated statute instead of a constitutional amendment. So that means that the the state legislature has to go in and treat it like a law. Um, it can get a little funky as to whether, you know, what will they do? We've seen with the redistricting, we had a constitutional amendment go in place that told the legislature and told this Ohio Redistricting Commission what to do. And sometimes they decided not to do the things that people said were in the Constitution that they had to do. Um, that's why we've had so many legal, uh, you know, the Ohio Supreme Court involved. So it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, obviously this initiated statute of issue two is Looking to legalize and regulate cultivation, manufacturing, testing, and sale, it's, it looks a lot like what we've seen in other states for Ohioans that are 21 and up, of course. But there is some nuance to it. Even Sherrod Brown, the U.S. senator from Ohio, was sort of wishy-washy. He wasn't sure what he was going to do on issue two in some interviews before he voted. He eventually did vote for, he told us he vote, voted for the measure when he went to early vote. But it is interesting there is a lot of talk about how much money this could bring in you know there was an Ohio State University um, study that said it could bring in tax revenue from anywhere from the high 200 millions to 400 million um, based on all the costs that would go into there's a 10% tax for every transaction if this goes into effect. but you're also yeah. talking about the charges that are going into, what would come out of it 25 percent of it goes to a substance abuse and addiction fund 36 percent goes to a local host community fund uh, you know so we're looking at 36 percent going into a social equity and jobs program fund so there's there's good things here it's just a matter of whether these nuances you know exist whether the legislature decides they want to try to you know mess around with it
4: yeah and unfortunately it's those equity things that are making it so challenging i mean this is what i call one of the good marijuana laws because it also requires the creation of social equity programs, one of which is designed to help people with prior marijuana convictions set up their own legal businesses. And that element of not just profiting off the drug after so long, but actually trying in some way to make amends for the damages of the war on drugs. It seems like that would have a fairly bipartisan level of support. But unfortunately, as you've, you've noted, that's not really true.
6: Right. And there is some criticism with issue two that it doesn't expunge previous, you know, um, charges for marijuana, convictions, yeah, and marijuana. Definitely. And then there's other, you know, uh, landlords and employers would have the authority to, you know, prohibit the use of cannabis in any times, whether they want to or not. So there's a lot of discretion here that, you know, causes some people to. To say oh I don't know how about I don't know about this quite yet but uh we'll see on Tuesday but um it does seem to have the support right now but it's it's really coming down to the nuances just like everything else
4: <laughs> so I asked this of delegate Dan Helmer in Virginia and I want to ask you too if I want an early sense of how the night's going in Ohio where should I be looking and what what is your your personal indicators for whether this is a good night or a bad night
6: well we always go by the AP but <laughs> I think um you know I always look at you know what the reactions are prior to polls closing say with um you know anti-abortion groups are they sort of coming out and saying you know the same old things the same criticisms that they've had of issue one all this time or are they going we've had some some people we've had come after the media um when back in august when we were talking about issue one we had had some groups come out and then say you know we it's states newsroom and Uh, Ohio Capital Journal were you know just liberal shills and all that stuff so you know it's it's interesting to see where people go on the day of and see what they say if they seem like they're getting backed into a corner if they seem like they don't you know know how this is going to go and it doesn't look like it's going to go in their favor they tend to get pretty ugly Um, but if we see a pretty calm day we'll see Um, and, and and I think turnout also you know you look at the early voting lines, which we've seen pretty good early voting lines. I'm not, I don't think they were as expeditious as they were for August in the issue one that was in August over the 60 percent threshold. But um, we've seen a lot of early voting and early voting tends to lean in this state, at least it tends to lean Democratic. So um, it's it's very important for voters to know when the polling closes and we see that initial burst of results Not maybe to take the sense from that, because that is going to be, you know, a big jump that we have seen those gaps close in the past. So definitely something we're going to be waiting on and just making sure we don't say anything until the footfalls. (laughs) We have we have Virginia and
4: now we have Ohio both cautioning us against reading too much into the early returns. I will take that as a truth. Susan, I wish we could keep you on the phone for another hour, but unfortunately, we're almost out of time. In our last couple seconds, let folks know where they can find you and read more of your great work.
6: Oh, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, OhioCapitalJournal.com is our, our website. Uh, we're also on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Susan Tevin. Um Feel free to catch me there. Um, and Ohio Capital Journal is free of ads and, and we are a nonprofit. So um, it's free to read and free to share at any time. Uh, all my colleagues um, try their best to do all this great work. And so we would love for have, to have as many people read as possible.
4: That was my guest, Susan Tebbin of the Ohio Capital Journal, giving us a full download on what to expect from Ohio's big statewide elections next Tuesday. And, oh yeah, well, I've got you. Support local journalism, folks. It really is the one thing keeping us from total
0: chaos. You're listening to Progress.